0: My goodness, it's been days and days. Clearly, since I we've know. chatted,
1: so we got a great paper from Leslie Alusko that just came out in the Science of Nature. I believe a journal's called, which I'm not familiar with. And mm,
0: yeah, neither am I. It's called a genotype-phenotype approach to testing taxonomic hypotheses in hominids
1: by Marianne Brazil, Tesla Monson, Christopher Schmidt, and Leslie Alusko. So what I really loved about this paper is that it unpacked tooth microwear in a way that I am not, certainly not qualified to, to criticize, but in a way that helped me understand how they take a set of data, do the kind of statistical analysis. And I asked a very saucy like what, what goes into the sausage type of question. About,
0: Bonferroni and and yeah. all that good stuff.
1: I want to know about, the statistical decisions that are made because part of our discipline is all about these sort of arbitrary statistical questions and science in general is sort of founded on statistical theory which is a philosophy right it's a philosophy Mm -hmm. of science that it's less than less than or around 100 years old this is not like totally established stuff so the way folks decide how to make these distinctions statistically mm-hmm. between, I mean, we're talking about stuff that you have to look at microscopically and measure, like the little flourishes on our teeth.
0: That's an important point that you bring up of just, especially for folks who are entering the field. So any graduate students or even undergrads listening to this is that it's not always abundantly clear which tests you should be using and when to, to analyze your data and how much of it really does depend on which questions you're asking. And I think we've heard this a number of times with previous guests that it always comes back to the question. You know, develop interesting questions and those questions will guide the rest of the study all the way through analysis and write-up.
1: Well, and what I've really liked about reading this series of papers and a book and talking to Peter Unger and then Leslie and Peter in the tribute episode is is the mentorship that they've apparently had and then how they sort of unpack this narrative. Um, We should also note that Leslie is the vice president of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists right now, so that's, we're sort of their, I don't know, sister, brother, little brother, little sister organization. We share a lot of organizational type of things. And she's also getting ready to make a big move to CNA, yeah. which we just interviewed a, f- a few folks from CNA in Spain.
0: Ana Mateos was one of the interviewees, I remember.
1: It's basically the Center, the National Center for the Study of Human Evolution.
0: Consorcio del Centro Nacional de Investigación de la Evolución Humana. I'm quite yeah. impressed with my ability to, to maintain my Spanish pronunciation skills.
1: <laughs> Are you going to interview her in Spanish?
0: Oh, goodness, no. That would be so embarrassing.
1: Leslie, welcome to the Saucer of Science.
0: <laughs> Thanks! It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. We're so excited to have you on, and we really do appreciate you making the time. We know things are not great out in California right now, that the skies are eerie and scary, and things are
2: literally on fire. Literally falling from the sky. At least it's not on fire here, so we're still really lucky, but yeah, the air quality is not so good. And we definitely had the Mad Max Thunderdome sky going on yesterday and today.
1: That's a, that's a reference that I can completely visualize, so (laughs) a little frank. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, The pictures that I've seen coming out are, are quite terrifying. Anyway, let's talk about something happier, um, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about your anthropology origin story. So how did you get interested in anthropology, and why did you decide to pursue it as a career?
2: Yeah, so I actually started college as a theater major. I, uh, quickly realized that while well, maybe I was talented in my teeny tiny town in Appalachia I was not talented when it came to people uh-huh. <laughs> in, the, in the bigger ocean and Where I, are you from? I I grew up in West Virginia and Virginia right on the border and then went to University of Virginia for my undergrad Yeah, so Tina Fey was actually there at the same time, majoring in theater, too. So, yeah, yeah, it was not, clearly it was not going to work out for me. Fifth competition! (laughs) That's a tough one. (laughs) Yeah, so I was, you know, fulfilling breadth requirements. A friend down the hall in my dormitory said, hey, I'm in this really cool anthropology class. You should come join me. And I did. The professor sat at the front of the table, cross-legged, Ran his hands through his hair, and I just thought, you know, that looks like a really good job. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, you know, I I just really liked, I really liked the cultural anthropology to begin with. But gradually got more interested in the archaeology, gradually into the geology, made it to a field school in northern Kenya, fell in love with the fieldwork, gradually just found myself drawn to the more biology side of the whole thing rather than the social sciences are questions that are extremely complicated and they don't have really solid answers. And some people thrive in that. And I am not one of them. I really like questions that have answers. And so I've kind of veered over into that other side. I'm intellectually more comfortable. So then I I did not have any idea how to go to graduate school. I had no idea how to do, I didn't even know how to do college. I didn't know you could go talk to faculty. (laughs) I didn't know you could do research as an undergrad. I had no idea. So I graduated and did a bunch of other stuff for about four years and gradually worked my way back into figuring out how to go to grad school and and found Alan.
1: I love this story because I resemble it so in so many ways. Well, I was a theater. I wanted to be a writer, but you know, basically stumbling along, not knowing anything, and realizing, wow, those people are right better than me. Focus on something to write about.
2: The arts is very much the same question as anthropology, because in theater you are experiencing kind of what it is to be humanity in different people's personal experiences. You embody them. and But at the root of it is that what is the essential humanness of everything? And this is just the science of that, right?
1: I agree 100% and <laughs> use those types of examples to try to teach a lot because having a personal experience through literature, theater, music is where a lot of our students can relate at the point they are, you know, when we see them in a the classroom.
2: But I have to say, the theater background also comes in handy because I absolutely love teaching really big lecture courses. That performative art aspect of it.
1: (laughs) I know. I refer to teaching as performing. (laughs) I am totally with you there. That's why I hate Zoom so much. I'm like, I can only perform this much.
0: I love it because I get to perform while wearing sweatpants but rocking a blazer on top, and
2: no one knows.
0: I'm so much more comfortable performing this way.
2: Oh man, my big lecture course turned into an online class, and so yeah, I'm now performing for a little video of myself. I miss it, although it kind of makes me wonder, like, how much of the big lecture courses are us just being narcissistic, right?
0: More than we want to admit. (laughs) hundred (laughs) percent! Anyway, uh, so you shared a paper with us that was recently published in the Science of Nature called A Genotype-Phenotype Approach to testing taxonomic hypotheses in hominids and you've got a a bunch of different co-authors and Marianne Brazil is actually the first author for this and the focus is on the capacity to infer variability within taxa by linking molar and premolar morphometrics to underlying genotypes and so that's a lot let's start there what does that mean for our listeners who have no clue what I just said?
2: So in paleontology, all we've got to work on are the shapes of bones, right? And we kind of realized back 20 some years ago that we were just kind of making it up by the seat of our pants. Whatever you could see, that's what you measured. The more you could see, the more you could break it down into every little piece and you know groove and bump. Those were data, those were insights to evolution, but we didn't actually know what causes those really a bump in a groove, I mean, what is that actually telling oh. you? And around the time we were starting to be able to do more developmental genetics, so Ivo Devo was starting, and I was really inspired by the early work that was looking at the genetic underpinnings of body plan organization you know the origins of limbs and sort of the de- figuring out the developmental mechanisms for that but my interests are much more in the neogenes sort of the last 10 million years and so those kinds of genetic approaches ask the really big questions of anatomy why four limbs instead of six <laughs> in, in vertebrates, for example origins of limbs from fins for example But I wanted something much more proximal because it's being driven by questions about humans. And quantitative genetics is a really good way to do this. And so I decided to use quantitative genetic analyses to basically redefine how we characterize skeletal variation so that we're actually then assessing skeletal variation in a way that reflects the underlying genetic influences on it. So that's where I'm coming from for all of this research has been a program in quantitative genetic analyses, working on teeth, because teeth are the most tractable system. Because, you know, once your teeth erupt, they don't change. (laughs) You know, We can see if they've broken or you've got a cavity, Mm. you can see that, but they don't regenerate in the same way that the rest of the skeleton does. So plus there's a lot of teeth in the fossil record. So it's a nice, convenient win-win on both sides. And so I set out trying to figure out new ways to, to quantify variation in the dentition that are actually defined by the genetics. So we did all of this quantitative genetic analysis and we came up with these two ratios that capture proportional differences in the size of your teeth. So when you look at a dentition, you, you know you can take out all your teeth and you've got a little pile of teeth on the, on the table, but they all look like separate entities, right? So it has made sense that over centuries, that we've been looking at skeletal variation and teeth and fossils, that we consider them as isolated, separate organs in the body. But when we start doing the quantitative genetic analyses, which enable us to take two different measurements and then see if they're correlated, if they have a, g- a shared genetic effect, because what we're doing in quantitative genetic analyses is looking at patterns of inheritance. So we have these. Populations of individuals where we know all of their family relationships. I've worked mostly with baboons. So it's a captive colony of baboons, over 3,000 individuals. We know all of their relationships. So mom, dad, siblings, half sibs, aunts, uncles, you name it. We've got all of these family relationships. And then we can figure out if these two individuals, you know, they look alike. Do they look alike because? they have a lot you know, genetically in common because of their close relationships. Um, so you can then statistically estimate, well, it's actually maximum likelihood estimation, which is kind of the opposite of statistics. It's still using these algorithms to figure out whether or not similarity in two different aspects of your phenotype are probably because you're related or because um, they have a shared genetic effect or not. So, statistically so we're doing genetics but we're not you know in the lab with the pipette and the dna where we're doing the statistical side of it so when you look at variation in a population some of it's genetic, some of it's not genetic, but correlations are exactly the same thing. Some of a correlation is underlain by genetics some you know, shared genetic effects and some by not. And so because of those genetic correlations, we could measure everything I could think of on the dentition and then figure out which of those are correlated because they have shared genetic effects. And then I use those patterns of shared genetic effect to figure out new ways to characterize the dentition that actually are accounting for those. So we found that like the length of the first molar, the length of the second molar, and the length of the third molar is due to exactly the same genetic effects. So they're not three separate teeth, they're one thing, and the proportional differences between them is because of one genetic mechanism. Can you relate that to humans
0: today where we get so much more variability in third molar presence than we say did in the past, and it seems to only be affecting that third molar?
2: So the third molars are definitely quite variable, and they're quite variable in a lot of different organ, in a lot of different vertebrates Mm. that have teeth. I mean, that last tooth generally has a lot more variation. And in humans, you add to that the fact that a lot of people are just missing that third molar, but the loss, the not having the third molar is probably due to different mechanisms than Mm. the variation in size. Um,
0: Interesting, okay.
2: So, because you also have to have space in your jaw for the teeth Mm -hmm. to develop. And, you know, if you look at human populations prior to the industrial revolution, if you go back a couple hundred years when diets were really different, actually, if you go back even before agriculture, even more so into those much more traditional diets, people generally got their third molars. You didn't lose them as much. And so we think that it's probably because using your jaws to chew creates a more robust jaw that gives you then the room to actually develop a tooth in it. And if you don't have a jaw big enough for that, that seems to be leading to this loss of the third molars in modern people.
0: So would you consider that an epigenetic effect rather than a genetic effect for lack of the third molar? Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Sorry to go off topic there, but I was just like, oh, as somebody who had impacted third molars that were moving backwards in my jaw, I'm quite interested in that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So if you had eaten a lot more carrots. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I will yell at my parents now for not shoving carrots into my mouth
2: as a child. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if that's actually gonna solve the problem or not, but luckily <laughs> 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 we figured out how to pull them, how to how to extract them, right? <laughs>
1: This is the sausage of science. So, we want to get into the weeds or the ingredients of the sausage. So, I have a seemingly mundane statistical question, but I also want to digress because you said you work with baboons. I have a baboon question. So, Robert Sapolsky described baboons as jerks, basically, which I always found in the video both charming and like, well, wait a minute. He also described a lot of variation that he found with some some events I so I'm just curious about your experience with baboons
2: oh my experience with baboons is is with baboons in captivity so we went into the cages and anesthetized them and so my experience with baboons is with baboons that were knocked out
1: (laughs) (laughs) so they were always nice to you because they they were were...
2: really nice
1: (laughs) where's the facility where you work with them
2: at the Southwest National Primate Research Center in San Antonio, Texas. Huh. Um, yeah, I did a lot of collaboration with what was then the Southwest National uh, Biomedical Research Facility, and they've, te- they've changed their name now to the Texas Biomedical Center.
1: If I can segue from our earlier conversation about Alan Walker, someday maybe I'll transition to someplace and start studying something completely different for fun. Maybe it'll be baboons.
2: You know what Alan told me? So I had said, you know, my in my next life, I'd really like to be either a developmental geneticist or I'd like to be a structural geologist. And he said, well, why would you wait until then? Because you're not guaranteed there's going to be another one. Get a postdoc. <laughs> and so I took that to heart. And when I came to Berkeley, I was able to hire a postdoc who does developmental genetics. And so we were able to do some work on monadelphus, looking at tooth development.
1: So he meant, not you go become a postdoc, but get a postdoc who has expertise that you can then learn. Oh,
2: Yeah, the most productive relationships I've had with postdocs have been the ones that I've brought in because they have an expertise in something I'm really interested in and need a collaborator. <laughs> you know, they need opportunity. And so those have been the most exciting postdoc collaborations that I've had in the lab.
1: Note to self. <laughs>
0: i just put that into a grant writing in a postdoc which is insanely expensive by the way not as expensive as graduate students though (laughs) anyway i'm gonna let chris ask his insane (laughs) statistics in question because i read that and i have no idea what's going on so
1: i was intrigued by the section of the paper where you and your co-authors are very transparent about the arbitrariness to some extent, in our statistical methodology, right? So we generally write papers that use a standard p-value of significance of 0.05. And there's a lot of debate about how valid that is based on what you're looking at in your theory. And when you do multiple comparisons, as of course you're explaining you had to do, the rule of thumb is sort of to do some sort of conservative adjustment, which is the Bonferroni. I'm not as familiar with Welch's ANOVA with games how post hoc test, but, but I do know enough to know that what you're saying is you tried several levels of conservativeness and then just what you found and the logic of that and normalizing statistics for everyday use, I think is important for all of us. So I'm just curious about your all thought process and and then what you found when you compared those three techniques.
2: Yeah. So So I'm definitely a very quantitative person. I I definitely feel like we need in our science to be very empirical. We need some rigor that comes with statistics, but I think we also need to be very realistic that statistics is not biology. Biology doesn't conform to rules of statistics. Every statistical analysis has its pros and cons, and they have different ones. And so what the general approach that we've taken in, in all of our projects in the lab is that if people use like three different methods, we should try all three. And if we get basically the same answer out of all three different analyses, then we can feel pretty good about it that, you know, we have not overlooked something really obvious. We're not making a really obvious mistake that we should, we could have easily avoided. And so that's why we decided to do these multiple approaches and then just looked at the pattern. And so in a sense, we do a lot of quantitative and analytical work, and then we just follow the pattern rather than really relying on any one analysis. Mm. So in in some ways, it's it's adding that rigor, but then also adding in enough of the real-worldness of biology. Like, does this make biological sense on top of that?
1: That's what I was looking for. I, I wanted to hear how you rectify difference or sameness. And so the description of there being a pattern resonates with me. I definitely appreciate that.
0: So speaking of patterns, one thing that you found in this paper is that the genus Homo is derived or unique relative to other taxa of hominids, but not that different from chimps. So what does that mean?
2: Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting too. You know, we looked at the Miocene apes, we looked at Australopithecus, Ardipithecus, and that chimps and humans definitely have some similarities in this one particular ratio that we looked at, which given given the evolutionary history, so you would you know, if you're only looking at extant organisms, you say, oh, they're similar because they're our closest living genus, right? But when you look at the fossils, you can see that that's not the case, that it's convergence. I'm also coming to this idea that it's not all about teeth. <laughs> So, so much of the variation. So the, There's more of a body attached to those teeth? No.
0: <laughs> I know.
2: And that body's in environments? What? <laughs> it's heretical as someone who just got hired as a dental anthropologist. Don't <laughs> tell anybody at Thinio, okay? <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> yeah, but I think that we can use the variation in the dentition to get insight into other more systemic effects. And so I'm thinking that these ratios that we're looking at, perhaps they have been selected on for their role in patterning the relative sizes of teeth. But I'm actually wondering if they might also be telling us some point about selection on other aspects of the phenotype. And this may actually be telling us something about perhaps growth rates in utero or Mm -hmm. postnatal growth rates really early in life. So this is something that in my lab group, we're starting to get kind of interested in, in exploring and probing a bit. And you'll see in some of our recent papers, we make allusions to this in a number of different discussion sections, and haven't entirely figured out how to pursue it yet. But that's we're going because I have that other another project that got published a couple of years ago looking at using the pleiotropy so these shared genetic effects on the dentition with other ectodermally derived structures so teeth form from the same developmental system as hair and sweat glands and mammary glands and so what has long looked like selection on this morphological feature on teeth I'm pretty convinced and we published a paper about uh, posing this hypothesis that actually the selection was on mammary glands mm. and the and tooth the morphology just, just went along for the ride
1: paper made quite the splash as i recall did it <laughs> you got a, you got a fair amount of press for that
2: we did get a little bit of press yeah yeah and we have we, we've been doing some follow-up work on that and so things have been bolstering that interpretation i don't think we were too off so hopefully some of those papers will come out soon
1: Yeah, that'll be exciting. I I did resist the urge to want to talk about all of your papers because I remember that as being prominent in the news, but now you have this new work. I want to jump to the next destination. You just got hired as a dental.
0: Can I ask a random question first because I'm desperately
2: curious? This is such a silly question. Favorite Miocene ape? My favorite Miocene ape? Oh my gosh. Well, it has to be... (laughs) Okay, do, I ha- do I have to pick like a species or can I go with like a genus? You can
0: stick with a genus. I'm okay with that.
2: Okay, because I absolutely love all of the stories about proconsul from my formative years as a graduate student when Alan talked lots about it and then they, he and Pat Shipman did that wonderful book about proconsul, The Ape in the Tree, mm. which is a wonderful intertwining of, of sort of the people and the characters doing the science and the science, and Stance is one of my favorite, my favorite nonfiction books in our discipline.
0: Excellent answer, thank you. I love the Miocene apes, because it's such an insane time where you have apes running around Europe, and other than humans today, that's it.
1: Dracopithecus is mine, what's yours?
0: Uh, mine's Oreopithecus. Ooh, squished flat like a cookie. (laughs) Right? And so everyone thinks, of course, it's a biped because you really can't tell the difference because it's squished and flat. So you can make up any story you want. There you go. Like Chris is pondering this one, like, hmm. You know, I'm just thinking,
1: uh, thinking about the book that you mentioned and these stories, and how much further in the weeds I can go with my undergrad class torturing them with Miocene ape stuff. I remember when I was an undergrad, it was like maybe one. I don't even know if it got a slide, right? But mine is mm. like growing. Like we need to talk more about where gorillas come from and the Miocene apes and all this diversity. <laughs> You're moving to the land of the Miocene ape in Europe.
2: yeah yeah so goodness, those sites in northern Spain are just absolutely spectacular with the fossils that that have been recovered from there, but even more impressive is what the scientists have done with those those fossils. I just really admire all of the research that is coming out of the Borgos group So Thinia and and the University of Borgos long long admired their work, um, very clever and thoughtful. And then they built this amazing museum. There's a museum of human evolution. And then right beside it is this amazing building of research and human evolution. Can you imagine a research institute in human evolution (laughs) funded by the government?
1: When we did the earlier interview with Jesus Rodriguez and Ana Mateos, and and I looked at the site and saw that, I just about fell over.
2: yeah so they I always said you know it would be it would be- dr- a dream job I, you know we just need them to to want to hire somebody who studies teeth and then they put out an advertisement for a dental anthropologist, so <laughs> I wrote the director, um Maria martina Torres, and you know cause she studies teeth so um said hey are you are you considering hiring at a more senior level or is this a junior position? And she said, actually, it's open, so <laughs> we had envisioned it'd be a junior person coming in. But mm-hmm. I applied and interviewed over Zoom. I have never been to Northern Spain. Wow. <laughs> I hear it's lovely. <laughs> it is lovely. When when do you actually physically move? Well, theoretically, the job starts on January 1st. I don't know. You know, there's this pandemic that's kind of getting in the way of... <laughs> Trying to plan an international move
0: in the midst of a pandemic, I can't even imagine the mental hurdles of just even thinking about it, much less actually doing it.
2: Well, in some ways it makes it easier because then you're like, well, clearly I can't pack my whole house up and just go. (laughs) So this will be a drawn out process.
1: How does that go over with the whole family? I'm always curious about that.
2: Oh, pretty excited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, well, I have a nine-year-old daughter and... Yeah, I the pandemic kind of helped in the sense that she got trapped at home with no friends around for months. <laughs> so she's like, kids can play outside in Spain. Let's go. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, my 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 husband is kind of getting closer to retirement age. This is the beauty of marrying someone much older than you.
0: <laughs> Spain is gorgeous. I did some field work there and I absolutely loved it. Best of luck on the move and starting the job and, and everything else. It's, I think it'll be great.
2: Muchas gracias.
0: <laughs>
1: so how's your Spanish?
0: That was about it. I have a I walk. was about to say, like, did we hear all of it just now? <laughs> Hola. Uno dos tres.
1: So, so hey. you're also hey. vice yeah. president of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists. I was just curious if you could give us an inside look at what's going on with our sibling organization, the AAPA.
2: These are interesting times, aren't they? Mm. It's definitely one of those. I'm trying to see So as vice president, I am chair of our scientific program, which means I am in charge of the meeting. This is a job that is always a difficult sell because organizing the meeting, even though there's kind of a formula for it, thanks to Steve Mm -hmm. Lee who preceded me, it's still a huge task. And I was fortunate enough to be elected into the position just as the pandemic hit and we get to massively (laughs) innovate on what a scientific meeting looks like. (laughs) So I'm constantly reminding myself that this is an amazing opportunity (laughs) and not a nightmare. (laughs) Um, But it really is an opportunity because, if you were ever gonna remake what a scientific conference looks like, yeah. you know, it'd be really hard to do without kind of being forced to do it. And we are being forced to do it. It's been nice actually to sit down and think about, you know, wh- why do I go to the meetings? You know, what, what, what do we get out of them? What's, what's the value? And on one level, the value is I, I get to go hang out in a nice hotel mm-hmm. and order room service for a dinner and all by myself, <laughs> have some quiet away from my family, you know, no offense to them. Love them dearly, but still. And Then the other value is just figuring out how to connect with people. Connect with people that you want to connect with, people you you always like to connect with, people that you should connect with but you don't know they exist. We we can't do anything remotely virtually that addresses the hotel you know quiet time away from your family kind of space but I think we might actually be able to make it even better in terms of the intentional networking and connection building. Mm -hmm. And we can do so across more time zones. We can do it more deliberately across a longer period of time. So I think my hope is that we will be able to come up with something that is equally as valuable, although it will be really different than years past.
0: We definitely look forward to seeing how it's gonna shape up. And I know Chris and I are a little bit a part of that process as well. And so, uh, yeah, we're excited because the HBA is gonna kind of be tagging along a little bit with whatever the AAPA does. Um, And I
2: recruited you into the program committee, so thank you.
1: (laughs) Clearly, we have a vested interest in in engagement and and disseminating information. So, you know, we feel, I I guess I'll speak for myself, but I feel obliged to share what I've learned, but I also also miss that networking. So I'm a little Mm -hmm. desperate to find ways to get the taste of it. And I love traveling to the city. So the hotel, room service, traveling bit is paining me greatly.
2: I hear you. I don't think I've ever spent this much time at home.
0: <laughs> no. This is the longest stretch I've had in years yeah. without going somewhere. I mean, you know, usually it's at least every other month I feel like I'm I'm jetting off. Uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> Leslie, what sorts of things do you do to manage work-life integration?
2: Well, about 9 years ago, well I guess it was 10 years ago, I decided <laughs> to have a kid. <laughs> Uh, so, so my my husband is, of course, uh, as you all know, but your listeners may not know, is um, also in the discipline. So we talk shop constantly. Uh, we're in the same department. <laughs> So we talk all kinds of shop constantly and having a kid was like the best thing we ever did. So we now are co-PIs on another project, (laughs) (laughs) of course, (laughs) but at least we didn't need human subjects approval, right? (laughs) (laughs) My kid is my, my extracurricular activity and she's been the best one I've ever chosen to do.
1: I think we took to calling it integration over balance because we recognize everything is intertwined in a really meaningful way. But then also when it comes to things like uh, family, we sort of fall forward based on the needs of those family members, be it father, parent, a dog, a cat, a kid. They all have needs that need to be met right
2: now. (laughs) Which is why I came to my office for this interview, because too many cats, too many kids.
1: (laughs) Well, we want to thank you for, for joining us again. It's been wonderful.
2: We thank wait. you so much. It's been such an honor. I really appreciate being asked to be here.
1: You're you're, you're always welcome. And we look forward Good. to hearing more when you get to the other side of the pond.
2: Yeah, we'd love to do another
0: interview once you get settled in. Well settled in.
2: <laughs> oh, that would be fun. That would be fun. Would yeah, be well, thank to. you so much. Go to
1: that museum and do an interview there, Kara. What do
0: you think? About there we that? go. On-site interview. We got to make that happen.
2: And we'll give you a tour around the facilities. I hear they're lovely. (laughs) Oh, we do need to
0: do this virtual tour for uh, the soft science podcast, Chris. We got to do it.
2: I have heard I have a nice office waiting for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very exciting. Anyway, thank you again so much, Leslie. It was wonderful chatting with you. Thank you. Take
2: care.